Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have our service from Palm Sunday. The title of this message is The Messiah Riding on a Peace Donkey. Hope the title gets you interested in what we have to say. Hey, if you're interested in celebrating Easter with us, come out at one of our services at 9.30 or 11. And then after we Easter, we are going to be returning back to just one weekend service at 10.30 uh, on the weekend, so that following week. So follow us, uh, make adjustments to when you come on that following week. But hopefully, we'll see you there this Sunday, North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Matthew 21, 1 through 11. It's on the front of your outline. This will be our text for today. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two, two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with their colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So this is, for those who've been in church, this is a rather familiar story, but I'm I'm hoping today we'll get a little bit of fresh perspective on it that'll uh, really kind of tie us into not only who Jesus is, but what his purposes were. So the first thing I want to look at is, is Passover itself. Jesus could have picked any time to come to Jesus out of the the Jewish calendar. They had other festivals. I love that God required the the Hebrew people to celebrate festivals. Like he he said, you will take some time off and have a party and remember me. And I'm thinking, we our our holidays are so tame nowadays. You know, we have have nice a couple of days we take off from school or whatever. But they were required to, to set aside large chunks of their calendar to eat and, and be together, all for the purpose of remembering how God had moved in their past. And so Passover was one of these uh, such festivals. And so it was happening this week that Jesus came in there. So I, I, I don't think we can... Um, overlook the fact that, that out of all the times Jesus could have come to Jerusalem as the Messiah, he chose to come during Passover. Now, Passover was a holiday that made the Romans a little bit anxious. Why? 
because the very meaning at the heart of Passover has to do with God hearing the cries of his people who are under the tyranny of the empire, enslaved by Egypt. He hears their cries and he sets them free. If we go all the way back in the Old Testament, the original Passover was, was the, the final of these ten plagues of judgment upon Egypt. Basically, the, the, the Hebrew people had formed their whole ethnic identity under uh, four centuries of slavery. I mean, imagine that. Imagine that as a people. I mean, these are the sons of Abraham. They, 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 they form their whole identity as a people under slavery, and they cry out to God. God hears their cry, raises up this guy Moses who goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go so they'll go worship in the desert. And we know the story uh, that, that Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart time after time. And so finally God says, this is going to be the final thing that gets Pharaoh's attention. It's come to this. Tonight, I want every household in Egypt to prepare a meal, to take a, a baby lamb, and you're going to have that baby lamb for dinner, and take, as you're, as you're preparing it, take some of the blood of that lamb, put it on the doorpost of your house. And when the angel of death passes through that night, every house that has the blood of the lamb on the doorpost is spared. But everyone that doesn't, they lose their firstborn. And so you, naturally, this is the final thing that gets Pharaoh's attention. And the next day, they kick the Jewish people out of, out of Egypt. They actually say, go, get out, you know, here, take some stuff with you. So Passover was a subversive holiday. Can you see that? <laughs> it's a subversive holiday. And so on this same week that Jesus would be riding his donkey into Jerusalem, around that same time, you better bet that Pilate, the governor of that region, was riding into town as well. Pilate was in charge of that region, but he didn't live there. He lived at Caesarea Maritima, uh, which is a little, a beautiful little ancient city built by Herod the Great that's, that's on the coast of the Mediterranean. I got to see it a few years back, and it's still impressive to this day. I mean, it's got aqueducts and Colosseum and this palace with its own private pool looking over the Mediterranean. Quite, quite opulent. But Pilate would normally govern his whole realm from there. He didn't need to mess with getting his hands dirty most of the time. But during Passover, Pilate better be there. Why? Because these Hebrew people, they might get some crazy ideas about this God who supposedly delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and they might get some crazy ideas to overthrow the government. Actually, in the hundred years leading up to this time, uh, there had been many attempts to over, overthrow the Roman government by the Jewish people. And some of those attempts actually happened when? During Passover. So you can see what's going on here. So this is, this is a, a high-anxiety time. But unlike Jesus, who would come into town on Passover, riding a donkey... Pilate would come the way all Roman governors, the way any important great person would, riding on the back of a war horse. You know, if you, if you look around at any major old city, almost any major old city in the world, from New Orleans to Paris to Lisbon to Madrid to St. Petersburg, Moscow, even cities in Central America, South America, Asia, one thing you're going to likely find in, in, in almost every one of these cities is some dude on a horse, a statue of a dude on a horse, right? <laughs> you do. 
And we, we have this romanticism with horses in America. We think of horses in the Wild West. And, you know, we think of horses. They're beautiful creatures. My, my wife loves horses, and she goes horse riding. And we, you know, horses are recreational animals, you know. That's we, we, we might watch horse races, but, you know, horses, that's, that's kind of the purpose they serve in our world. But do you realize for the seven centuries up to the Gospels and then all the way up to World War I, Horses throughout human history have been seen in one way, and it wasn't romantic. They were seen as a military technology. Military technology. And so it might surprise you that if, if, you, if you do a study on the word horse in the Bible, you'll come away thinking God hates horses. I mean, it's like horses are not spoke of in a very uh, nice way. And if you really want to understand uh, uh, horses in the Old Testament, if you want to get free from your modern lens of the way we view horses nowadays, just, in, just switch out the word horse for tank. And you'll, you'll begin to understand the way horses were looked at because they were looked at uh, as, as a subversive technology that, that changed things. I was just listening to a, a, a podcast on history the other day, and they were talking about the original people who used a cavalry back in the 700s. I mean, people had been using horses for chariots for hundreds of years before that. But the first group of people who figured out that you can ride on a horse and shoot a bow and arrow or throw a spear, that was disruptive. Just the way missiles or guns would be. I mean, it, was, it changed the face of warfare. And the first people who figured out to do it, like the Assyrians, uh, the Scythians, the barbarian tribes on the Asian steppes, they mowed people down. And so when we look at the Old Testament, we find that the word horse is, is usually derogatory. God warns his people over and over about horses. I put a few of these uh, uh, passages in your, in your um outline Deuteronomy 20 verse 1 God is speaking to the children of Israel during the exodus he says when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours don't be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt will be with you when you're about to go into the battle the priest shall come forward and address the army he shall say here O Israel today I'm going to be uh Today you are going to battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified of them. God tells the, the, the Jewish people on a number of times, don't be afraid of the horses of the enemy. Joshua 11.6, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them because this time tomorrow I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. You know, when you find horses, hamstring them. Deuteronomy 17, 16, God's speaking to, to, to Israel about someday when you get into the promised land, you're going to want a king like everybody else. Don't let this king multiply his horses. Which, when you get to Solomon, by the way, I don't know. Everybody says Solomon was like the wisest guy ever. It's debatable to me. He married like, he married like 700 women. I'm like... I got my hands full already. <laughs> She's all the woman I need. She's better than 700 combined. Uh, but Solomon, Solomon was, well, I don't know what that meant. It's like, oh, I was trying to be romantic. Uh, <laughs> uh, but Solomon actually multiplied horses 
and chariots to the, in, into the thousands and ten thousands. And there are these warnings all throughout the Old Testament, don't trust in your horses. Actually, when we see the battles that the Jewish people won, the big battles, the, they didn't win because they had horses and chariots. I mean, there's this one crazy battle in First Chronicles um, where they, they actually, they're outnumbered. They got all these armies coming against them. And what do they do? They get Zach and Faith and the band, and they put the musicians out there on the front line. <laughs> they say, sing. <laughs> uh, and they start singing. They start worshiping God. And as they worship, it said that the enemies all just killed each other. <laughs> you know, they like slaughtered each other. <laughs> That's pretty cool. But God wanted them to know throughout their history, your trust is not to be in your own, uh, your, your own weapons. You've got a special relationship with God. Trust in that. Don't trust in your horses. Uh, Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. We need to hear this today. I mean, we are, people are getting scared. Because we're trusting in our, in our own power. We're trusting in the best that we can do. And there's all kinds, you know, for a country that has a military that's eight times, I mean, that, that's, that's more than the eight countries combined behind us, who lives in an isolated part of the world where there's no army that can like, actually physically attack us, we're, we're terrified because now there's, People who figured out how to crash planes and make bombs out of shoes or their underwear or whatever. I mean, they're getting creative. And, 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 we're, and we're living in fear because we're, we're trusting in our own, our own military might. And yet, even our own military might can't protect us from some of these crazy guys that are really creative. The admonition through Scripture is, is, is unanimous. Anytime God speaks... Of, of what the children of Israel to do, are to do. He says, don't trust in your horses. Don't trust in your chariots. Don't trust in your ability to make war. Trust in God to protect you. He's your stronghold. He's your refuge. He's the one that's got you. He's the rock that will not be moved. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> but it's not just the Old Testament that horses are given a bad rap. If we look at the book of Revelation... We see the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These are bad dudes. There's a, uh, a black horse. Or there, there's, a, there's a rider on a white horse, a red one, a, a black one, and a pale one. The white one symbolizes conquest. The, the red one symbolizes war. The black one symbolizes famine. And the pale one symbolizes death. Now, a lot of people have taken these these things in Revelation, they've kind of pushed them to the end of times. But I, honestly, I believe that this is the cycle of human history. First comes the conquering horse, then comes the war horse, then comes the famine horse, then comes the death horse. And if we see it throughout history, whether it's Alexander the Great or Napoleon Bonaparte, Hitler, when we see this throughout history, it's, it's conquest, war, famine, death. That's where our war horses have gotten the world today. Why do I say this? Why am, am I trying to pick a fight with horses? I love horses. 
I think God loves horses too. It's because Jesus comes in during Passover week, and he could have walked through the gates of Jerusalem the way he probably had done on numerous times when he was going to teach there. In fact, Jesus could have rode into Jerusalem on a horse, a war horse, and he could have looked great like Alexander. But instead, Jesus comes in on not just a donkey, like a, a young donkey. I mean, imagine that. It probably looked comical. I mean, really. I'm trying to think of like, like a grown man on a young donkey. And put that up against like Pilate and his war horse, his Roman war horse that probably had, you know, armor on the front of it and was decorated. Put Jesus on this donkey next to Pilate on his Roman war horse and, and, and you would just be laughing like, this is ridiculous. What is this about? Well, here's what it's about. Because Jesus, what we see in this passage is that he has been, if you, if you read Matthew up to this point, Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem for a while. So he's been making the ascent. And when you're coming into Jerusalem, you go over the Mount of, Mount of Olives. There's a little village up there. And you're looking down into this valley, which goes back up into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city on a hill. And Jesus, when he gets to this village of the Mount, Mount of Olives, he doesn't just keep walking. He says, wait a second. Before I go into Jerusalem, there's something we need. I need a donkey. Someone give me a donkey. And Matthew explains why. He quotes this verse. Rejoice uh, from from, uh, Zechariah. See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on the colt and on the foal of a donkey. This is actually a quote from Zechariah 9. But here's, here's the whole quote there, because there's a couple of verses that come up next that say this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, Shout, jotter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, conqueror, but lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And then it goes on to say this, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Pilate comes in on a war horse. Jesus comes in on a peace donkey. I mean, that's the meaning of this. The same Jesus who was born to a young Jewish girl in an obscure part of the empire whose birth was was not in some castle or palace but in a lowly manger, who was not surrounded by foreign dignitaries or or the movers and shakers of the world, but was instead surrounded by shepherds (laughs) and ordinary folk who grew up the son of of a carpenter in a rural part on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, whose whole ministry was characterized by teaching people to love God and to love people, who never lifted up a sword to fight anything, the same Jesus now is coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday riding on a donkey. And he's doing it because he's quoting this scripture. See, Jesus was much more in line with the Old Testament prophets than, than the Old Testament priestly traditions. The prophets in the Old Testament, they would engage in prophetic theater all the time. And so this is a bit of prophetic theater. Jesus is, is, is doing something that is actually saying something. 
And, and Matthew picks up on it. He goes, oh, yeah, that's that passage out of Zechariah. Jesus is deliberately getting a donkey so he can reenact that. Well, the next thing that Jesus is going to do in Matthew is he's going to go into the temple and he's going to turn over all the, the tables of the money changers and run the animals out of there. S- symbolically, prophetically judging the temple system. God's turning this thing upside down. The same Jesus by Friday, Good Friday, will turn out to be the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of of the whole world, whose blood will be on the doorpost of the universe. And this Jesus doesn't win the battle the way that Alexander did, or Caesar Augustus, or the way even Pilate would resort to fighting. He does it the same way he did it from the beginning, by laying down his life. Now some people will say, surely... And, and I, I hear Christians say this all the time. Yeah, Jesus came as a, lion, as a lamb the first time, but he's coming back as a lion. You ever heard that before? Jesus came, came the first time. He was nice, Jesus. But next time, he's, he's going to be angry, Jesus. I've actually heard well-known Christian, uh, I mean, well-known people who have big ministries talk about how they believe Jesus is actually going to come back and how he's going to slaughter millions of people with his own sword. Like an actual sword. And he's going to take months to do it. There's actual well-known people. I'm not going to give you their YouTube clips. The truth is that we see that Jesus does, in the book of Revelation, he does come riding on a horse, a white horse. And it is a, it is a horse of conquest too. And we find that Jesus has a sword. We find that, that, that in Revelation 21, I mean, Revelation 19, Jesus is seen uh, riding on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood and a sword. But he doesn't kill anybody with his sword. Actually, the blood on his own robe isn't the blood of the people he's killed. It's his own blood. It's the blood of Jesus dying on the cross. It's his own sacrifice. And that sword that Jesus has, it's not a sword in his hand to, to cut down and kill people. It's the sword that comes out of his mouth, which John says is the, is the word of God. The same sword which has slain the retributive, violent person within me. You with me? Because each one of us, we, we grow up in a world that says, somebody hurts you, you hurt them back. Somebody kills your mama, you kill their family. Jesus has shut that down. With his own blood. And he's slaying the retributive, violent person within all of us. Because his kingdom, as it says in Zechariah, peace will extend to the ends of the earth. I don't know why we think God gets all schizophrenic. And like, like he's got multiple personality disorder. Like, oh yeah, he came the first time and he was really nice. But then he comes back and he's going to be unconditionally like killing everybody. I don't know why we get that. Well, I know why, because that's the kind of God we want. We want the Jesus who rides into town like a Roman soldier with a centurion, you know, with centurions and and an army of people that are going to coerce people and and, and force them to bow. You know, we sang about a passage, my favorite passage in, in Philippians 2. It says, let's consider our relationships with one another. As we look to our relationships with one another, let's consider Jesus, who though being 
the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited and used in his favor, but rather he took the form of a slave and he humbled himself, being obedient to God, even unto death, even death on a cross, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. We see this in Revelation. When, when, when the universe finally gets a picture, when, when it finally sinks into people's hearts what this Jesus is like and what he's actually done, who God really is, guess what? Everybody's erupting in praise. Every knee's bowing. And it's not because Jesus is going, bow down, you sinners. They get a glimpse of the beauty of this God who has slain us with his love and his forgiveness who's broken us out of this cycle of retributive violence. And the invitation to us this morning is the same invitation to the original followers. See, there was a lot of people gathered out there who were welcoming Jesus in as the Messiah. They really believed that he was going to be the one. And they're saying, Hosanna, God, save us. Come now, come quickly, rescue us, welcome the king. They threw their, 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 their jackets down and their palm branches to welcome him as royalty. Many of these same people, though, would be saying crucify him on Friday because he didn't fit their expectations. When I look at the world today, I get scared sometimes, too. I'm going to be honest. I have to. I've told you all before. I got to limit the amount of stuff that I news that I watch because I will I will get depressed as all get up. And I've got political views. I've got ideas on the way I think this country ought to be run. Nobody's asking. (laughs) Nobody cares. But at the end of the day, you want to know what my politics are? Jesus is king. The end of the day, that's my politics. Because, I mean, honestly, whether we get a Democrat, a Republican, a reality TV star, (laughs) I mean, Ultimately, at the end of the day, yeah, I've got opinions on this stuff, but I don't put my trust in any of it. Because honestly, I don't, I don't think a president can do that much anyway. <laughs> I put my trust in the Lord. He is the rock that will not be moved. He's the one that will see us through. Kingdoms will rise and fall. I mean, we're talking about an area of the country, an area of the world. When we look at, at, at Israel, I mean, there had been six empires that had dominated them before the Romans. It was a world that was used to shifting tides. And, and, and Jesus' message to them when he rode in on a, on, a, on a peace donkey that week is, here's your king. Trust him. Don't trust in your swords any longer. Don't trust in your weapons. Don't trust in your politics. Trust in this king who is bringing a true peace, which is greater than anything we can understand. Trust our lives to him. All right, I'm going to shut up. I left a few questions for reflection on your outline today. As we welcome this king in, this King Jesus riding on a peace donkey, what are the areas in my life where God is inviting me to surrender my desire for revenge, for, for vengeance and retribution? Where is God inviting me? I, look, I'm not saying this stuff is easy. Where's God inviting me to trust him? 
with the outcome? In what ways have I let my fears cause me to trust in things other than God? I believe this is an important question, folks, because everything in our world is trying to get us to be afraid right now. I mean, you watch anything. You watch, watch cable news for like three minutes, you're going to be panicked because fear sells. It's, it's, it's fear and sex. <laughs> That's the way they sell everything. In what way is fear causing me to trust in things other than God? I can't answer that for you. I can answer it for me. But as we enter into this Holy Week, let's sit with those questions. Let's just say, God, how am I panicked because of things that have nothing to do with you? How do I need to let go of those things and simply trust you? How do I need to surrender my life to this king and welcome you in today? Welcome your peace in. Why don't you all stand? Lord Jesus, we welcome you into our hearts today. We say, come be the king of all that we are, all that we have. Be the king of our relationships and our stuff. Be the king of our hopes and our fears. Be the king of our longings and our anxieties today, God. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have slain our hearts. Not with your condemnation, not with threats of violence, but with your unrelenting love and mercy and compassion towards us, God. Help us to see you for who you are, Lord. Lord, let everything that stands against you in our heart and your ways, God, let it just be brought low, Lord particularly in the coming days, as we remember you, the one who has stepped into the worst of our pain and violence and taken it upon yourself, that we might know true life in you, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.